Welcome to the Reformed Media Review. My name is Camden Busey. I'm here with Dr. Scott Oliphant, who is Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We're going to be speaking about a book by Brannon Ellis titled Calvin, Classical Trinitarianism, and the Aseity of the Son, which is published by Oxford University Press in 2012. Uh, Dr. Oliphant uh, has a review of this book, a more extensive review, which is found in the latest issue of the Westminster Theological Journal, uh, Spring 2013, Volume 75, Number 1, if you'd like an expansive treatment of this book. But we want to get into this today and provide a brief audio overview of this title, of its strengths, and and of who might uh, want to read it. Dr. Oliphant, tell us about this book. It's a great book. It's one of the best um I've read in a while, um, just in terms of what I do at the seminary, I teach the Doctrine of God course, and um, I was interested in this because I have a, a long section in that course on the Trinity. And um, in in my uh, discussion of uh, the Trinity, particularly on the aseity of the Son, I've been uh, more or less uh, dependent on Warfield's uh, article, Calvin's Doctrine of the Trinity. Now along comes uh, Brandon Ellis, and um, he takes his cue from Warfield uh, in uh, Calvin's Doctrine of the Trinity, but he also uh, has some disagreements with what uh, Warfield uh, concludes in that. The basic thesis, though, of uh, Warfield and Ellis uh, is the same. And what what, um, uh, Ellis is trying to do in in terms of historical theology, I just want to make clear it's a historical theological work. He doesn't do much exegesis. It's, it's very concise. It's very well written, uh, but he's working through the history of Trinitarian language primarily, and um, his uh, aim is to explain what he calls the autotheon controversies and the significance of those controversies to classical Trinitarian uh, language and theology. Mm. Now, the, the autotheon controversies are controversies surrounding um, the aseity of the Son, autotheos, uh, of himself, uh, that idea of Christ, of the Son of God being God of himself, and how that autotheon ought to be articulated. So maybe as you can already see, this is not a book um, for the average um, person in the pew. It's not a (laughs) book necessarily for a lay reader. It presupposes a good bit of uh, standard Trinitarian theology already understood as uh, Ellis dives into his topic. Uh, But for anyone who's interested in Trinitarian theology, who's written on Trinitarian theology, and particularly interested in it in light of Warfield's um, I think excellent uh, treatise on that doctrine with respect to Calvin's understanding. If you're interested in those kinds of things, in my view, you have to have this book in your library. It's unfortunate that it's so expensive, and I haven't said this as far as I know about any book that I've reviewed uh, of this price, but this one is worth the money. Wow. If you can't, If you can't buy it, um, make sure it's in your local library so that you can access it. Because uh, if you're interested in those kinds of things, um, this is this is the book to read. You should first read Warfield, Calvin's Doctrine of the Trinity, then pick up Ellis and get the nuance, uh, historical nuances that Ellis provides. Uh, in that way, um, it's it's. I haven't read anything like it. I'm not sure there's much else like it except what Warfield has done, and and Ellis just does a magnificent job of. Um, of uh, 
showing the, the controversies in their historical progression, but also locating those controversies, particularly in Calvin's own theology, and showing how Calvin negotiated the Trinitarian um, debates of his own time and how that worked itself out even into the 17th century. So if I can, Ken, let me just try to give a quick overview here, if I can do that. Calvin Calvin wrestles uh, with the Nicene expression, uh, deum de deo, that is God of God, or theos exeu, God of God in, in the Nicene Creed. What does it mean that the Son is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Now, as Calvin begins to wrestle with this, it's, it's interesting. This is a point Ellis brings out that I think is, is fascinating and, and must be understood. Calvin is wrestling with this, not first of all in the context of anti-Trinitarian debates, even though he's going to do that in the 1550s, but initially in the 1530s, he's wrestling with this in the context of Orthodox Trinitarian theology. So there's, there's a man that um, uh, comes over from uh, the Romanist church, the Roman Catholic church, by the name of Pierre Caroli. And, and Caroli uh, begins uh, to sort of sidle up alongside uh, Farrell and Calvin and Verey, and he's, he's uh, uh, I think, uh, wanting to situate himself particularly in terms of Reformed theology. But what he, what he begins to do then is he begins to press Calvin— on, on Calvin's understanding of the um, auto-theos character of the Son, and he wants Calvin, um, Carolee, presses Calvin to sign, uh, to subscribe to the Nicene Creed. Now, this has become uh, one of those issues in the history of the Church that's kind of gotten uh, muddled, I'm afraid, um, in his uh, three-volume work on, on creeds, uh, Philip Schaff uh, says, uh, Calvin refused to sign the creed because of his, and this is Schaff's quote, because of the, quote, damnable clauses, unquote, that Calvin found in the Nicene Creed. Well, that's just not true historically, and Calvin makes clear, even in his own letters, that that's not true. He would not subscribe the Nicene Creed at this point not because he objected to what the creed was saying, but because of Carolee's insistence that for Calvin to be orthodox, he would have to do that. And Calvin said, I'm just not going to do that. I'm orthodox if I abide by Scripture. But then on the other, so, so Carolee begins then to accuse Calvin of being an Arian. He's an Arian because he wants to subscribe to the Nicene Creed. So there's a trial in the late 1530s. Uh, Calvin is exonerated. Um, Carolee is banished, and, uh-huh. he's, and, and, and he's, he's wrong. He's shown to be wrong. So what does Carolee do? Well, he goes back to the Roman Church, and as a Romanist, then he begins to accuse Calvin of being a Sabellian. Now, 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 this is where it gets kind of interesting. He's a Sabellian, and here's here's the point. After all this uh, ver- verbiage that I've given to you, here's the point: Calvin is accused of being a. Now, let me uh, just parenthetically. Uh, Carolee is an Orthodox Trinitarian, so we don't want to think that this is anti-Trinitarian. That's not it. He's an Orthodox Trinitarian. He's accusing Calvin of being Sabellian because Calvin is is insistent that the Son's aseity, the second person of the Trinity, that his aseity is underived, that he is God of himself as God, and that he is only derived with respect to his person. 
not with respect to his deity. That stands him out sharply against the entire Eastern tradition. And there, exactly. there's even now Western theologians in, in the present day that want to stress that derivation. But Calvin here is, very, is I think, very helpful on the point. He is helpful. But yeah. see, here's, now here's the historical point. And, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm moving so uh, quickly here. There's so much to cover. But Calvin then insists that the Son is, um, is self-existent God— or as 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 um, as Brandon Ellis puts it, I think nicely. Uh, it, can you express the son's self existence only adjectivally, or can you express it adverbally? That is, can you say only that the son is the self existent God, which every Orthodox Trinitar- Trinitarian would say, or can you affirm that he is God self existently? Yeah. The the latter point. The uh, adverbial there is what Calvin affirms, and now here's the important point that, that Ellis makes through his, his run through history, that remains the minority view in Reformed thinking. The, the Calvinian point, Calvin's point that, that the Son is God self-existently, is Calvin's point, he emphasizes it, by the 17th century it gets eclipsed. So that the so that while uh, many would want to take up Calvin's language and do take up Calvin's language, Turretin does this, but they remain to they remain consistent with what is effectively a Thomistic way of understanding the essence of God in that it is a communicated essence. So the majority reform position is that the son's essence is communicated. Now, L. Ellis is arguing against that approach, and his argument, I think, is, to, to my mind, definitive. He's exactly right. You, we, we, we ought to argue against that approach, but he's not arguing against it within the context of one is orthodox and one is unorthodox. One unorthodox. He's arguing against it on the basis of what he calls Trinitarian ruled language, that is, language that is governed by what Scripture itself is telling us. So in that sense, what he wants to, the point he wants to make, and this is the point that Warfield makes, I think he makes it very well, is that Calvin's view, and I should add here, um, this is the view that I've taught in my Doctrine of God class since I took it. This is the view I have on a uh, good source. Um, that This is the view that John Murray taught. It's the view that Warfield taught. It's the view I'm convinced that Hodge taught. So while there's a, a majority view out there that, that the essence of the Son is communicated from the Father, even though it's the same essence, that majority view has not been taught by Princeton and Westminster. We have adopted, and I think, I think we have good biblical reason for doing this, we have adopted Calvin's view as the most consistent Orthodox Trinitarian view to teach. Now, what, what Ellis shows in, in this is that, um, number one, he shows that the, the notion of communication of essence had its genesis, as far as uh, Ellis can tell, and I think uh, that the studies here are definitive, had its genesis in Thomas. Aquinas began to speak of a communication of essence because for him, if the Son was going to be eternally generated, if we we're going we to confess that he is uh, eternally begotten, that begottenness must apply to his deity and to his person. And that became a standard view in terms of communication of essence and communication of person. Calvin says, "What? here's, here's the question I think that it's important to, to, to put, and to me this makes it definitive. 
What is it that is essential to God that we will not ascribe essentially to the Son? Right. All right. Do you see that question? Yeah. The answer. The answer ought to be nothing. The answer in the Thomistic view that was adopted by most of the Reform. The answer is we ascribe everything to the Son that we ascribe to God, but we we ascribe it communicatedly. That is, it's communicated from the Father to the Son. Now, what this means is only the Father is essentially God, the Son is essentially God as communicated from the Father. Mm-hmm. Now see, that to, and what El, the point that Ellis is making, I can't make the argument here because it's too, um, it's, it's too difficult, but the point that Ellis is making is that, it, that what that brings to our understanding of the Trinity is an inherent inconsistency. So what you have in Turretin, for example, Turretin says the Son is from the Father and is God of himself, uh, not with respect to his person, but essence. And then he says all generation indicates a communication of essence. Therefore, there's a communication of essence from the Father to the Son. So Turretin wants to have it both ways. And I think you, what you see in Turretin really and this is so unusual for Turton, what you see is a basic contradiction. He's trying to use Calvin's language and also uh, align himself with the majority opinion. And Ellison, Ellis goes, to show, goes on to show that the majority opinion has embedded within it an inherent biblical inconsistency. That inconsistency has its locus in the way, and Ellis doesn't highlight this as much as I wish he would have, but he, he does make the point, he makes it clearly. Once you affirm, if you affirm, as I do, that Yahweh is the Son, and you, you can see uh, Hodge brings this out, Calvin brings this out, um, you, you can see this in uh, various ways in which the apostles, uh, Christ, and um, other writers of Scripture attribute what is said of Yahweh to the Son in the New Testament. Once you affirm that Yahweh is the Son, you have no option but to say, therefore the Son is I am who I am, and cannot have his essence communicatedly. Yeah. See, and, and, that, and that then has become uh, the majority view. Now, this, the, what, part of what interests me in this, and I'll, I'll stop with this, Camden, but part of what interests me in this is I did, an, I, I did another book review that's not been published yet. I think it'll be out in the next Westminster Journal of Kevin's, uh, Kevin Giles' new book on uh, eternal generation of the Son. Yes. And one of the, things, one of the things that he tried, one of the points he tries to make is he's affirming eternal generation of the Son is he says the re- one of the reasons that it's gotten a bad press in uh, in in people such as uh, Buswell and Bettner and 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 Ware and uh, Helm and, and others, one of the reasons it's gotten bad press, he says, is due to the Princetonians, Charles Hodge, A. A. Hodge, and B. B. Warfield. Now, I think in in my book review, I, I make this point. What Giles has not seen is that what Warfield affirms with respect to eternal generation has to do with the person. And he's not willing, as Calvin was not, to link eternal generation with the essence. So that with respect to his person as son, he is derived. With respect to his deity, it is essentially 
underived. Um, Ellis goes on to make the point, he just uses three examples of the reformed who followed Calvin. One was um, Keckerman, and he says, uh, Keckerman says, and I think here Keckerman's exactly right, once you have, and Keckerman was more, uh, maybe this isn't fair, but more philosophical than theological in some ways, but Keckerman's point is, once you have a distinction of essence, there is no way that you can have sameness. I mean, you can, you can say sameness and identical all you want to, but the distinction itself, because it's an essential distinction and not modal, by definition, it's essential and not modal. The distinction itself speaks against any view of simplicity or identity there. I think he's exactly right. Yeah. So, so the, the bottom line, Ellis, I think, provides the best resource for the debate and discussion, and I think the best argument for Calvin's view, which became then, I think, Hodge's view, Warfield's view, Murray's view, my view of, um, of the Son's eternal generation and of the Son's aseity, which is in itself underived while his person is derived. Well, I know a book that I have to go out and get uh, for my own <laughs> research. This is right in the ballpark of uh, the chapter I'm writing for my own dissertation. So, excellent. Looks like I'm going to be out 135 dollars here. Well, uh, it's, it's, it's money well spent, <laughs> and I don't I don't say that often because I know books are expensive. But this one is uh, yeah. is worth the outlay. It really is. Well, we trust we trust your assessment, and I appreciated your review. Again, you can read a lengthier review, uh, a scholarly review here in the Westminster Theological Journal, spring 2013. Uh, the book under review by Brandon Ellis is Calvin, Classical Trinitarianism, and the Aseity of the Son, published by Oxford University Press, 2012. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Oliphant, and I want to let all the listeners know that this has been the Reformed Media Review. Visit us online uh, for more reviews and also other episodes at reformedforum.org. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>